book. We're making really good time. Revelation 10, it's on page 954. Uh, when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Revelation 10 and 1. I saw another strong angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little scroll which was open, and he placed his right foot on the sea, and his left on the land, and he cried with a loud voice, as with a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunders uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and the things in it, the earth and the things in it, the sea and the things in it, that there will no longer be delay. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel... When he is about to sound, when the mystery of God is finished, as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, saying, Go, take the scroll which is in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet like honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Then they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. The title of the message this morning is called to Witness. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. You are the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth. You are the creator of all there is. And you own... Lord, the cattle on a thousand hills, and you, you own us. Our lives are in your hands. Are we live, move, and have our being in you, our breath, and every part of our lives, we are dependent upon you, whether we know it or acknowledge it or not. And so we thank you, Lord, for the mercy you've shown us, bringing us to today. The mercy you've shown us in giving us this opportunity and this day to gather, to worship, to study Your Word and listen to what You have for us from it. We thank You for the mercy You've shown. Lord, in, in, in holding off judgment on us until we could come to Jesus. Holding off judgment on the world. We know Your Word says that You're not slack concerning Your promises. But You're being merciful, giving more people more opportunities to hear the Gospel to believe the gospel and be saved by the Jesus of the gospel. Help us who are disciples today. Let us take that seriously. Let us understand the mercy we've been given to be alive at this point and given the opportunities we have to share the gospel with others and give us boldness and courage to do it. If there's any here today that have not trusted in Jesus, make them to understand the mercy they've received to be alive up to this point and not to be brought into the rightly, the rightly deserved judgment that is coming. And let them take advantage of today's offer of mercy and receive Christ as their Savior. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. I don't want to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or to what you want done. Father, search us and try us and See what's going on in our lives and what we have not given us. 
what we know not teach us and what we are not make us. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Seven trumpets follow the same pattern as the seven seals. We're told about six of them. And then there's a break between the sixth and the seventh. There is two visions John sees in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. The first vision uh, is the one that we're looking at today. The vision, everything in this vision is building toward verse 11, where John is told he must prophesy again. In, in many ways, this chapter is a, a confirmation or a, a recalling of John to prophetic ministry. If we were to look at, say, the calling of Ezekiel, we would see very similar patterns being followed here. But what's happening is John is essentially being told after this vision is all done, we get to the end of Revelation, your life's not over. Right? You're not going to write this down, lay down and die. You're going to write this down, you're going to send it out, and then you're going to go out. And you are going to, to prophesy again to a lot of people, and a lot of nations, and a lot of languages, and even kings. John is being sent out to take the, the message of what God has done in Jesus, the gospel, the message of what God is going to do through Jesus, the events of Revelation, and then he's going to be sent out to urge them to repent and believe upon Jesus. What this chapter serves for the Apostle John, it also serves for us. Every disciple of Jesus is called to be a witness of what God has done in Jesus, the gospel, what God is going to do through Jesus, the events we see in Revelation, and then urge people to repent and believe in Jesus. The reality is there are no disciples of Jesus who are not called to this ministry in one way or another. And if we're going to answer this call, we must first rely on God's word. We're in John, we're in the book of Revelation, so we're speaking a lot about the end times. And the end times is really, really popular in our culture. Think about how many movies and books and stories there are about apocalyptic endings. Now, I love those kind of books and stories and movies. I mean, if you want to get my attention, say zombie apocalypse, and I'm, I'm there. I mean, I am there to watch and see what's going on. Now, while the stories, these apocalyptic stories are all very different, they, they all tend to have one thing in common. And the one thing is, well, I guess they'd say two things. One is the apocalypse is always man-made, right? Men created a virus which spread and caused zombies or men pushed the wrong button and blew the world up. Men brought about the apocalypse. And with the idea of man creating the apocalypse is the other consistency. Man can fix it. Man can create the cure for zombieism. Man can undo and make the world, remake the world again, a, a kinder, gentler place after the bombs have gone off. What we find in the book of Revelation is something very, very different. The apocalypse of Revelation, it is not man-made. It is God-made. God is the one who brings about the end of the world. And because the apocalypse is God-made, man can do nothing about it. We saw last week 
in the, the trumpets. That all things on earth we could, we could put our trust in. Whether it's governments or politics or wealth or health. All of those things will fail in the actual apocalypse. Man cannot stop or slow down or undo what God has done and is going to do through the, the end of time. God's word is different in also not only how the, it describes the end, but also how it describes the God who, who brings the end. The world at large wants to act as though God is just so kind and so loving. He'll just overlook and excuse sin. Now, God is kind, and God is merciful, and God is loving. But there is nowhere in Scripture where we're shown a God who excuses or overlooks sin. This is particularly true in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we are repeatedly given a picture of a God who judges sin and punishes Sinners. Now, again, I made that distinction last week. If you were here, and if not, that's an important distinction. We often want to say God judges sin, which he does to an extent. But make no mistake, sin isn't what faces the judgment of God. Right? Adultery will not be punished. Adulterers will. Fornication will not be punished. Fornicators will. Drunkenness will not be punished, but drunkards will. Right? Do you see the difference? God judges sin and punishes sinners. Revelation also, it gives us very specific things about God when he judges sin. But it does paint him as merciful. Again, when we looked last week, the trumpet would sound and there was opportunity for people to repent of their sins, believe in Jesus. The very fact... Anyone is alive today and has not been judged is an act of God's mercy. God could legitimately and righteously call every person into judgment just like that. God owes no one, not one more breath. And so any person who is in rebellion against God right now, who lives, moves and breathes, they do so solely by the mercy of God. And, and throughout the book of Revelation... The people who survive the judgments, the people who aren't destroyed by it, they are given mercy by being alive and given the opportunity to call out. But here's the truth. The world at large is not going to appreciate the picture of God's word, specifically Revelation, the way it paints about God, about salvation or the end times. And if we're going to faithfully witness what God has done through Jesus in the gospel, what God is going to do through Jesus in the book of Revelation and urge people to repent and believe in Jesus, we must be confident in and rely on God's word. In the first part of Revelation 10, we see the angel comes down and he has a little book in his hand. Now, there's lots of ideas about what the little book is. But the one that makes the most sense to me is the little book represents the book of Revelation. Um, in, in this case, I think it's kind of the, the focus of the whole sort of the book that we're given here. And if this is the case, and I think it is, then we're given several reasons why we can be confident in God 
and in His Word, and we can rely on it. First, the book is given by God. Right in verse 1 and 2, the angel comes down already with the book in his hand. Where did the angel get the book? Well, the angel got it from God. God's Word frequently paints angels as messengers from God, bringing God's message to people. And so the angel comes down from heaven with God, with God's Word to give to the Apostle John. He gets a book, again, very likely what we're See, what we have is the book of Revelation from God. He, he brings it to John. Everything we see, we, we talked about that in the early days of the study. Everything we see in this book is given by God to John to give to us. And, and really, all of God's word is the same way. It is given by inspiration of God. Holy men of God wrote as they were carried along by the spirit, the Bible tells us. The idea of given by inspiration is literally God breathed. It, it pictures God breathing into people and them writing down what he wanted them to say. Everything we have in God's word is given to us by God. It is not man's best attempt to understand what God is like. It is not man's best attempt to understand who God is and what God does. It is not man's best attempt to understand how salvation can be attained or how the end will come. Instead, it is God's self-revelation of who He is. It is God's revelation of salvation through faith in Jesus. It is God's revelation of the end of time and how He will bring it to pass. And it is God's revelation urging people to repent of their sins and believe upon Jesus whom He sent. We trust in, we rely on God's Word because it is given by God. But it is given by the sovereign God. Right? It's one thing... For someone to say they're going to do something amazing. But it's something entirely different for someone to be able to do what they've said. What we learn here is God who gives the revelation is fully capable of doing what he has said in this revelation. Because he is the, not a sovereign God, he is the one and only Sovereign God. And His sovereignty is demonstrated in a couple of ways. One, in verse 2, says, The angel who came down from God placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. Now, this may not seem like much to us, but imagine you live in a world where everyone believes in a multitude of gods. And they believe that there is a God of summer and there's a God of winter. There's a God of springtime and there's a God of harvest. There's a God of the hills. There's a God of the valleys. There's a God of the plains. And there's a God of the seas. And so what they do when you believe in all of these kinds of gods is your God stays in your area. There's a God of the forest and his statue, his shrines are in the forest. And never does he depart into the plains. And if your God is a God of the seas, then his shrine is probably near the sea. But he doesn't venture back towards the mountains. And the messenger of the God who gives this revelation places his foot on the land and on the sea, saying, my God is Lord over all. He is Lord over the land and he is Lord over the sea. 
It, we, we see this further. You say, you know, I'm not pulling something out and making it seem like more than it is. Look at what it goes on to say. The angel in verse 6, who, who swears, raises his hand to heaven, swore by him who what? Lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and everything in it, the earth and everything in it, the sea and everything in it. By, by saying his God is the creator of the heavens and all that's in it, the sea and all that. He's saying my God is, is sovereign over everything. And this same God is going to determine that this is going to come to pass. There will no longer be a delay. That's what he's saying at the end of verse 6. He's saying all of this stuff, my God, the sovereign God, the creator God, is going to bring to pass and there's not going to be a delay. This is... If we were to look at Daniel 12, verses 6 and 7, we would see a similar angel dressed in a similar way, make a similar oath. And instead of saying they will no longer be a delay, he says, all these events will be completed. The God who gives the revelation guarantees it will all come to pass. His guarantee is valid and trustworthy because He is the sovereign Creator God who can do exactly what He said He can do. It is not only given by God and by the sovereign God, but by the omniscient God. In verse 7, it says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, which is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as He announced to His servants the prophets. How can we be sure God knows what is going to happen and so can tell us about it accurately. It's because God is all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning. This, this formula, and the idea of mystery here means there was something that was completely unknown to people. And in the Old Testament, it was kind of, God gave it, He announced it to His servants, the prophets, but it was shrouded. They didn't understand fully what they were writing down. But now God is revealing what he wrote, what he had them write down. And now he is going to bring it to pass exactly as he said. Now, one of the formulas in the Old Testament you frequently find in the ways that God distinguishes himself from the gods of the land is he would say, I declare the end from the beginning. I tell you what's going to happen long before it ever comes so that when it happens, you'll say, well, good grief. God has told us that hundreds of years ago. And, and this is a, a similar thing. He's bringing this up. This is saying God is, is very unlike the gods of the land. Right? Even in this day, there were a multitude of gods. But those gods could not tell the end from the beginning. They couldn't tell a mystery that nobody understood and then explain it and bring it to pass in years to come. God is omniscient. He knows everything about everything. And so he can tell the future with absolute, perfect accuracy. We can be confident in and rely on God's word as we witness about what God has done in Jesus, the gospel. What God will do through Jesus, the events of revelation. And then we can urge people to repent and believe on Jesus. Because the book we're declaring is given by the sovereign, omniscient God. And we can rely on it. We can be confident in it. Secondly, we're going to answer God's call. We must also reject speculative theology. Now, I'm a member. I use this 
the, the phrase speculative theology based upon a, a Facebook group I'm a part of. It's called the Journal of Evangelical Speculative Theology. And here's the description of the group. Speculative theology seeks to answer the nagging questions that Revelation fails to address. Did Adam have a belly button? What is our evangelistic responsibility to extraterrestrials? How many angels can fit on the head of a pen? Since no amount of scholarship can provide answers to these questions, we must, be go, we must go beyond what can be known and speculate. Now, the group's obviously just for fun, but it does reveal a legitimate issue. And the issue is people speculate answers to questions God's Word does not give. And then they build doctrines. Often they declare them to be essential doctrines around them. Now, Revelation, of course, because of the way it's worded, and some of the, the great visions and things that we see is just a hotbed of speculative theology. Now, sometimes the speculation is plausible, but then other times it is just sheer nonsense. So let me give you an example of how speculative theology works. So in verse 3, the angel roars, and the seven peals of thunder utter their voices. Now that must have been an interesting thing. So here's the question for you. What did the seven thunders utter? Right? They uttered voices. They said actual words. It wasn't just rumbling. We know this because John was about to write it down. He was going to write down what they said. And God said, don't. Seal it up. So the question I have for you is... What did the seven thunders utter? Well, there's no legitimate way to know. Because this is never referenced again. We're never told the answer to what was sealed and what they said. Yet if you go to Google and you Google what did the seven thunders say in Revelation 10, according to my search on Friday, there were two million results. Now, some of the results were commentators explaining nobody knows. Some of them were commentators seeking to explain why it was sealed and we weren't told what they said. But some were seeking to give an answer to an ultimately unanswerable question. There is at least one book on Amazon dedicated to answering a question God's Word does not answer. And in the end... It is nothing but speculative theology. And if we're going to be faithful witnesses to what God has done in Jesus, the gospel, what God is going to do through Jesus, the events of revelation, and urge people to repent and believe in Jesus, we must reject speculative theology. Now, when it comes to the end in particular of speculative theology, we have to understand there are many questions God's word does not answer about the end of time. For instance, who is the Antichrist? Well, God's Word gives us a lot of information about the Antichrist. I, I think enough to conclude a lot of things. He is a real person. He is a, a man of sin, the son of perdition, 2 Thessalonians 2.3. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and seeks to be worshipped as God, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. He's a man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. He'll perform all sorts of deceptive signs, 2 Thessalonians 2.9. He makes war with the saints and kills them, Revelation 13. 
Plus all the stuff we've seen from Revelation 6 and, and more stuff we'll see as time goes on. Now, so the, the book, the word tells us a lot about the character of the Antichrist, the actions of the Antichrist, things he will do and want to do and how he will be. But there is one critical piece of information it never addresses. Who is he? What is his identity? Well, even though God's word doesn't give us the answer, that doesn't stop people from speculating. The Antichrist will be a Roman Catholic Pope. Or the Antichrist will be a United Nations General Secretary. If you're an American and you're involved in American politics, then he is, if you're a conservative American, then he is whatever liberal is currently famous and popular. And if you're a liberal American, then he is whatever conservative American is currently famous and popular. With each of these answers, there is a multitude of reasons explaining why this is the one. My favorite. This was my favorite as a kid. I overheard teachers at my school explaining why Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. Two, there were two main ones in that day. Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev. Right. Ronald Reagan, because his name was Ronald Wilson Reagan. Six, six, six. As clear as the nose on your face. And then Gorbachev, you remember he had that kind of stain on his head, right? And the Antichrist would kind of get a, a wound to his head and come back to life. And that was that. Was that. Now, here's the reality. Apparently it wasn't them, right? Um, and with all the things today, who is the Antichrist? If you go home and Google that, there will be millions of answers giving you a particular person or the particular region where they're going to come from. And in all... It's nothing more than speculation. There are reasons they'll give why they think it is. But it is nothing but speculative theology. And it can be fun to sit and talk to people in a just around over coffee and speculate. But it's not productive. Right. If we're going to be witnesses about what God has done through Jesus in the gospel, what God is going to do through Jesus in the events of Revelation and urge people to repent and believe, we have to avoid that kind of speculation because it's not clearly given in Scripture. So we reject speculative theology. Another form of speculative theology is when exactly, what is the exact date of the end? That's a big one, right? I mean, that is a, a massive one. And, and I don't want to brag, but I have lived through multiple apocalypses in my life. I lived through 88 reasons Jesus will come back in 1988. I lived through Y2K. I lived through 9-11. I lived through Harold Camping's Jesus is coming back in 2011. I lived through the Mayan doomsday of 2012. I lived through all the blood moons of 2014 and 2015. Most recently, I lived through 2020 with its COVID, its TP shortage, its murder hornets, and its election, all of which were signs of the end times. I have lived through so many apocalypses, I have to be careful not to think I'm immortal, right? Because people are always giving these sorts of things as reasons. This is the end. This is the sign. And these were used to predict the end. Now, the end times predictions varied in years and reasons and the primary predictors, even the religions. But they all had one very important characteristic in common. And here's what it was. Every one of them were wrong. Not one of them was even close to being right. Why have these predictions all been wrong? Because according to Jesus, no one knows the day or the hour. 
according to Jesus, the end will come at a time when we least expect it. So regardless of any sort of date setting someone may give, any sort of the Holy Spirit told me I was in a trance and God showed me, regardless of anything, if anyone, no matter who they are, if they say God told me this is the end, you can write that person's name down and put false prophet off to the side. It doesn't matter how many followers they have, how popular they are, how much their book sells. Jesus said even he did not know, only the Father. Well, if Jesus doesn't know and the angels don't know, that dude with the wall-sized chart does not know either. Now, that book is going to sell, make no mistake. He writes a book about 21 reasons Jesus is coming back in 2021. It's going to sell. And it's going to be false. We have to reject this sort of speculative theology. Any sort of date setting, regardless of how anyone comes by the date, is nothing but speculation. We are never faithful witnesses about what God has done through Jesus, what God is going to do through Jesus in Revelation, and in urging people to repent and believe when we take part in speculative theology. Now, God's Word gives us much. But the reality is there is also much God has chosen not to reveal to us. And what God has chosen not to reveal, God has even told us how to respond to it. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. So they follow all the words of his law. This is when it comes to speculative theology. This is maybe the most important verse. Yes, there are many things we can know, but there are also some things we do not know. And the things we can know, guess what we're to do? Focus on those. To learn, it's for us, for our children, so it pictures us teaching and passing it down, so that we may follow all the words of the law. What about the things that God hasn't revealed? Well, they belong to God. Why did God choose not to tell us the identity of the Antichrist? I don't know. That's not answered. And that's not for me to know. What, who, when will, why has God told us not told us when the end will be? I, I don't know. It's not for me to know. Now, here's the thing. Let me kind of say this and we'll move on. The reason speculative theology is so fun is it requires nothing from us. Right? If the Antichrist is some sort of UN general secretary down the future. I don't have to live any differently. That doesn't affect me, not right now, right? But what about the things that I can know? Well, what about loving my neighbor, turning the other cheek, doing all things like gropping and complaining, denying myself, taking up my cross, following Jesus? I mean, I don't know about you, I'm not doing any of those things perfectly. If I were to focus just on the stuff I know, and I'm not doing perfectly. I can spend all my time on that. But it requires that from me. It requires that effort that speculative theology just requires me to read and make a pronouncement. That's why people like it. It does not require to love our neighbor, to love our enemies, to share the gospel, to do good to others. All it requires me to do is read 
and speak as though I know something I know nothing about. And if there's one thing we as humans like to do, it is to sound authoritative and smarter than the world around us. I know something y'all don't know. Come and buy my book so you can know it too. Well, now that'll sell. But here's 20 ways to deny yourself, take up your cross to follow Jesus. That book will go to the burn pile because it won't sell a copy. Things that are hidden, they belong to God. The things that can be known, we're to take, to teach, and to do. And so we reject speculative theology. If we're going to be faithful witnesses about what God has done in Jesus through the gospel, what God is going to do through Jesus through the events of Revelation, then urge people to repent and believe in Jesus, we, we have to reject speculative theology. And then finally, refuse to compromise the message. One of the temptations we will face as we witness about what God has done through Jesus in the gospel, what God is going to do through Jesus in the events of Revelation, as we urge people to repent and believe in Jesus, is to be embarrassed or almost embarrassed by what is revealed in God's word and then refusing to talk about it. The temptation to compromise the message is real. And we face this temptation because the message is hard. This is particularly true in the book of Revelation. When we get into Revelation, I mean, we have seen some shocking images of God's judgment and wrath on the whole earth. It is poured out on all people who have rejected Jesus and who refuse As we saw in the end of Revelation 9, they refuse to repent. But here's what makes it even more hard. God's word in general and Revelation in particular does not always use the the nonspecific term sin. Sometimes it is very specific. Last week, just in Revelation 9 and 20, it mentions idol worship. Demon worship, it worshiped murder, witchcraft, sexual immorality, and theft. That's very specific. When we get to Revelation 21, and we're given this great view of heaven, it lays out this great view of heaven, then it gives this list of people who have no part in this. And it's not sinners. It is very specific sins. And it says these people don't get to go to heaven. And then later it gives another specific list of people who don't get to go to heaven. And the temptation is to compromise. The temptation is to soften the message. And thus is the one thing we cannot do. Anything we do to soften the message, to make it more palatable, more acceptable to an unbeliever, does not make it more acceptable to the unbeliever. Because if we water the message down to the point they can take it and they can accept it, we have altered the message to the point it is emptied of its power to save. We cannot, we don't have the right to change the message. The parts of the message we want to compromise and water down are the parts that are necessary to convict people. 
and bring them to repentance and faith. If someone doesn't like the idea of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, watering that down does not help them accept Jesus Christ. If someone is living in fornication and they don't want to give up their fornication, explaining why that's okay in this day and age does not help them come to Jesus Christ. It just comforts them in their rebellion against Jesus Christ. When we alter the message, we water it down to the point that it has no power to save. We give them another Jesus, another gospel. And the Apostle Paul says those who do that should be anathema. They're cursed from God. Rather than helping people, when we water down the message, we inoculate them against the true gospel. And when they hear that saving message, that powerful message, that convicting message, they say, no, no. Now, Stacy, Stacy told me that what part wasn't real and I didn't have to worry about that. I'm good just the way I am. So how do we keep from compromising the message? Well, embrace the bad with the good. Look at verse eight. The voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, saying, go and take the scroll, which in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and the land And I went to the angel telling him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It'll make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it'll be as sweet as honey. So I took the little scroll from the angel and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. What does it mean the book was bitter and sweet both? Well, here's how one of my commentaries explained it. When John swallowed the book, he found it was both a blessing and a burden. It was sweet and bitter at the same time. The sweetness of this book can be found in its passages about the grace, love, and mercy of our God. When we read about Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead, it is so very sweet. When we read of heaven, it is so sweet. When we read that He will meet our needs, never leave us and come to take us home someday, that is also sweet. When the sinner reads that Jesus will save him if he will only come to Jesus by faith, that is Sweeter words than can describe this book is filled with sweetness, but it is also a book filled with bitterness. This book tells us about the hell that awaits the lost. It is this book that the Spirit of God uses to convict the hearts of saints and sinners alike. This book tells of judgment, wrath and damnation. It's a bitter book, too. Sometimes I read my Bible and I am thrilled and blessed and helped. Other times I read it and I'm brought to tears over something it has revealed in my life. It is a bitter, sweet book. Be that as it may, we take the whole book, the bitter and the sweet, the blessings and the burdens. It reveals our problems, but it also points us to the right solution. Praise the Lord for the word of God. God's word is not a buffet. But we get to pick and choose what we like and reject the things we don't. To be a faithful witness of what God has done in Jesus, the gospel, what God is going to do through Jesus, the events of Revelation, and urge people to repent and believe in Jesus, we must embrace the bad and the good. We must not water down the message. We must understand and equally share and accept what it says about life and death 
sin and forgiveness, judgment and salvation, bondage and freedom, heaviness and joy, heaven and hell. Any sort of compromise is watering down and renders us unfaithful. And then we proclaim boldly, boldly proclaim the whole message. John is told you must prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. After embracing the message, eating it in, John was told to go and share it out with others. John could not keep this message to himself. There were people who desperately needed to know what was coming. There were struggling disciples of Jesus who needed to know God knew what was going on in their lives and God cared. There were people suffering injustice at the hands of wicked rulers who needed to know there was a God in heaven who would bring justice to the unjust. There were people who needed to know the sacrifices they were making, the suffering they were enduring was worth it. They needed to know what they were doing and what they were enduring for the sake of Christ was not in vain. But at the same time, there were unbelievers who needed to know a judgment was coming. They needed to know the judgment of God was terrible. They needed to know God was not going to overlook or excuse their sin. They needed to know that while sin was judged, it was people, sinners... Who were punished. They needed to know Jesus could and would save them from all of this. If they would repent and believe. That same burden is laid upon us today. We, like John, have received the message. I mean, if you say you're a disciple of Jesus. This is your book. You have received it. And the need is then to take it and not keep it to ourselves to go for there are disciples of Jesus all around us who are struggling and they need to know God cares for them they need to know God is aware of what's going on in their lives they need to know the sacrifices they're making the suffering they're enduring is not in vain but there are also unbelievers all around us who need to know the truth about what awaits them in the future They need to know a judgment is coming and it is a terrible, fierce judgment. They need to know God will not overlook their sin. They need to know that while sin is judged, sinners, people, are punished. And most of all, they need to know there is a Savior who died and rose again. And if they will repent of their sins and believe upon Him, they will be saved from the judgment to come. We must boldly Proclaim the message. In the end, this is what it means to be a witness about what God has done in Jesus through the gospel, what God is going to do through Jesus through the events of Revelation. And then we must urge people to repent and believe in Jesus. To this, you and I, without exception, are called. There are two responses to this message today, we need to make one of the other. One is embrace what God has done through Jesus in the Gospel by repenting of our sins and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first and the great response that must be made by each and every person. It is an individual response. It is your response. 
Absolutely no one can make this for you. You must choose Jesus. Or you must be like the people at the end of Revelation 9 who reject Jesus. I say this frequently, but it is one of the most important truths to know. There is no middle ground. There is no third option. We choose Jesus or we reject Jesus. Those are the only choices there are. And so we always choose. Second potential needed response is to be the witness we're called to be. Each one of us has people in our lives who do not know the truth about what Jesus, God has done for us in Jesus. They do not believe the gospel. They are not saved. And we must tell them. There are people in our lives who are ignorantly living happy in their rejection of Jesus, not knowing there is a horrific judgment coming and they themselves will face it. And they need to know what Revelation says about what God is going to do through Jesus. And after hearing those two things, they need to be urged to repent and believe in Jesus. We are, all of us, as disciples of Jesus, expected, called to be this kind of a witness. We must tell them what God has done, what God is going to do, and urge them to repent and believe. Let's stand. Heads bowed and with eyes closed. I just want to give a time to respond. And in this time, you can come to the altars and pray where you are. The, the need, the need is to deal with God as He's dealing with you. If there is someone God has laid on your mind that you need to share with, you need to pray right now for opportunities courage and faithfulness. If you've never personally repented and believed in Jesus, you must do that today. I'm just going to give just a couple of minutes then I'll pray and we'll have the musicians and and the ushers come.